This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, it's like watching a deadly crash in slow motion. We knew a second wave was on the way. We heard many fine words about how the government and the long-term care sector were going to prevent a repeat of last spring's tragedy in our nursing homes. And yet, here we are with the death toll mounting. But the tragedy is unfolding, and Scarborough is the result of what we expected, the second wave of COVID-19. As you heard in Bob's News, 29 residents of the Kennedy Lodge long-term care home owned by Rivera at Kennedy and Ellesmere have died since uh, the outbreak was declared last month. In all, 92 residents and 35 employees of Kennedy Lodge have tested positive since October the 2nd. And that's not the only Rivera nursing home in Toronto with a large outbreak. More than half of the residents at Main Terrace Long-Term Care near Main Street and Kingston Road have tested positive. There have also been significant COVID-19 outbreaks at other Rivera nursing homes in Western Canada. And the company is also the subject of a $500 million class action lawsuit launched over COVID-19. Across Ontario as a whole, there have been 110 deaths of residents in long-term care. And there are now 93 outbreaks At the beginning of September, there were just five. These numbers are appalling. I'd like to hear from you if this affects you or anyone you know or a loved one. What do you think of the situation? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to bring in Jane Medes, who is a staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, as well as NDP, MPP, and health critic, Francelina. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning, France. Well, we we heard from your leader, Andrea Horvath, this morning uh, calling for circuit breakers. I mean, what what do you think when you see this? We all knew that this was coming. I I feel really bad. I feel like we are failing Ontarian. Um, Our public health, um, no experts, they know what to do to protect us, and yet... uh, the Ford government refuses to listen to them um, if we would let our public health set the measures as to how do we protect the health of all Ontarians, including people in long-term care and in retirement homes, and then let the government uh, be there to support the businesses and to support the people who are being affected uh, by loss of income or loss of jobs through the pandemic let the public health expert tell us what to do to protect us and make sure the government um, is there to support people affected financially. 
but none of this is happening. Mr. Ford is pretending to be a uh, public health expert and, and making it up as he goes. Jane Medes, uh what had you expected to be happening now uh, versus what is actually the situation? Well, we had certainly hoped to see, uh, you know, better results in the second wave. Uh, we'd hoped that the lessons from the first wave would have been learned um, and that we would have uh, better infection uh, control in the homes. Um, I'd like to point out that the two homes that you mentioned are both older homes. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we don't know is whether, you know, how many of the four bedrooms have been flipped to two bedrooms because they were doing that through attrition, whether they were sending people to hospital, for example, when they come down with the illness, or are they keeping them in the homes where there really can't be proper infection control? Um, you know, what's happening with staff, um, you know, because it's obviously coming in through staff. So, you know, it's really unfortunate that we didn't learn the lessons in the, in the spring um, to to affect it in the fall. Well, they're saying that they're testing staff uh, twice a day, and uh, they're they're saying that they've asked everybody uh, to self isolate, which to me suggests no, they're not sending them to hospital, and that that was another issue the last time around. Well, I mean, one of the things is when you're saying they're testing twice a day, what they're doing is they're taking temperatures and asking questions, so that's not going to catch anybody who is asymptomatic for sure. Um, and one of the problems in, in certainly in the uh, long-term care sector um, is that while the residents will get actual tested, um, obviously visitors who are going in must be tested, and there's no mandatory testing of staffing to have like the actual, you know, nasal testing. Um, it's uh, recommended. I don't know whether this home is making it mandatory, but it is not mandatory with, uh, throughout the system. So that's a big problem as well. And what about, you know, we heard a while ago about these rapid tests and they were supposed to go first to long-term care. Do you know if any of them have actually arrived? Because uh, testing them twice a day is one thing, but I don't know about getting results twice a day. Well, again, it's, it's the testing is not um, doing the any kind of test to see if they have it. It's just testing to see if they have symptoms. It's just asking them if they have symptoms and doing a, a temperature test. And I'm not aware, I don't know if France knows, but I'm certainly not aware of any um, rapid testing getting out into the system yet. No, no rapid tests that have been uh, deployed in Ontario as of yet. Well, because um, mm-hmm. apparently they've arrived and that what we heard and this from Ottawa. And, you know, I'm wondering if there are too many cooks in this, too many levels of government uh, have said that they will go to long-term care first. Uh, so, France, if, if we had more staffing in the homes, could this has, have been avoided? What could have avoided this? Many things could have avoided that. Uh, I mean, like uh, Jane mentioned, we still have a lot of older homes that have four residents per room. Uh, public health has, has spoken that you cannot have more than two residents per room. This was never done. To wait on attrition, are they really doing it? Are, are they taking every opportunity possible to move people out of uh, four-bed uh, wards? Uh, we don't know. Um, second is the quality of care is directly linked to the quality of caregivers. If you haven't got enough people to care for them, they may not notice that they've started a runny nose, that they started to have a fever, that they started to show sign of COVID, and then this goes and treated 
is allowed to spread within the home. There are um, we know how to do this, but you need to have the staff, you need to have the PPE, you need to have uh, the to follow your uh, best advice from public health and from infe- infections control um, between Ontario knowing how to do this and actually our long-term care home doing it. Um, there's uh, money in between, and that money is not flowing to them. Uh, but l- let me ask you this, Jane. So mm-hmm. you've said clearly it's coming from staff. So mm-hmm. uh, if you follow that logic, then having more staff time would not have prevented it. And uh, in terms of, uh, you know, going to, I mean, they don't have, uh, if they don't have the space, if there's, where could they have put people to reduce the number of people in those rooms? Well, I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, with respect to reducing people in the rooms, that is a problem. I think that there is still a really big push uh, to not send residents to hospital when they do become sick. And I think that that is um, really a problem uh, because they're just going to infect the homes. Um, The issue around the staffing is interesting because even though you might be bringing in more staff, one of the problems in uh, long-term care is that the staff are so overworked. And if you are, you know, being going from call bell to call bell to call bell, you know, staff aren't, you know, you don't have enough time in regular times, but now you're probably short staff because people are calling out sick because they're sick. Um, the less staff you have, the less infection control you're going to have because they're not going to be able to take the time to do proper, you know, hand washing or change gowns or whatever between, and they take shortcuts, and the shortcuts do come through the infection control. And the other thing is that we do know from, you know, there's been surveys done of staff in homes that the homes continue to restrict access to PPE, restrict access to, you know, um, uh, uh, masks so they can't change between residents or not allowing them have to N95s, all of that. Um, And so, you know, it just continues. I mean, if we had proper staffing, they could take the time to, um, you know, make sure that things are, are being done safely. And if you look at what kind of um, infection protocols are done in long-term care homes versus in hospitals, it's shocking. Um, you know, hospitals, their protocols are much higher, and yet who is dying? It's the people in long-term care. But they don't have the time to do the kind of things that they do in hospital, and they certainly don't have the equipment like they do in the hospital. Well, it, it's interesting, and we know that hospitals have served as as these kind of uh, spokes, not spokes, but the center of hubs at dealing with infection control, helping long-term care, and yet the result isn't here. Uh, France, what we've seen in a number of homes in outbreak is that the management was taken over. Would you expect this to happen with these Rivera homes? There's, there's a good chance that it will happen. So uh, the, what Jane was explaining is that we know how to do infection control. We do this in our hospital already. It is, it is something that every long-term care home under law is to have an infection control uh, plan for all of their homes. Very few of them did that. Very few of them um, had trained their staff. All of this was done during the first wave. So now they know how to do, they know um, how to uh, respect infection control protocols. They have the plan and they have, uh, they're all linked to a hospital now through a hub, like you've talked about, who can uh, bring support. 
But even with this, um, what Jane is describing is happening throughout. You know that you need to change your glove, but you don't have time to do it. And your employer only gives you a certain amount of gloves. So um, you know what you have to do, but you cannot do it. Same thing with the mask. You know uh, that uh, if you're going to be dealing with somebody who's probable or has COVID, you should use an N95. They don't make those available to them. So it's not through lack of knowledge. It's uh, it's uh, staff not having the time uh, to do proper infection control and not having the resources to do that. And once you bring in the hospital, then they will take the time it takes they will follow the protocol. They will bring the resources that is needed for infection control protocols to be followed. Um, the, one of the things that the, the homes seem to keep wanting to revert to was the restricting visitors, and and they just allowed family caregivers to be recognized as such. What impact has that had? on the rate of infection, because we know that in order to visit a long-term care home, you have to have a a negative test within 14 days. So I I don't think that it's had, um, I don't think it's increased um, the effect um, in the homes. Uh, As I said, staff aren't necessarily getting tests, like they don't get have to do the proper testing. Um, Many of them do, but many of them don't. Um, So uh, the residents, uh, family members are going to be doing that. They're also only going to see one person. So they don't have to worry about changing masks and gloves and everything in between people. And if you're going to see, you know, if I'm going to see my grandmother in a long-term care home, um, I'm going to do, I have a personal responsibility. I have a personal connection. I don't, I'm going to do everything I can not to um, infect my family member. And I think that, so I think that there is some difference there um, because I think the people who are going in are really doing as much as they can not to infect anybody. Um, I think also that, that we still see a problem in that um, many homes are still trying to restrict these caregivers, even though uh, the government has said that they're allowed to go in. Um, and we still get a lot of calls where homes are putting up huge barriers to family members um, who, frankly, will be going in and taking some of the load off, um, but they're they're not allowing it. Uh, and 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 I get the same. Uh, not a day goes by that we don't have somebody who calls in that uh, that is a caregiver not allowed to go in. Anybody can be taught how to put PPE on and take it off safely. It is something that you and I and everybody else can learn how to do. And then, as Jane said, um, the they really do not want to get their loved one uh, sick. That's that's the reason they go and see their loved one is, is so that they can bring in, bring them a little bit of mental health support and make them healthier. Um, we haven't seen um, caregiver uh, spreading the COVID, uh, not at all, much to the opposite. We have seen the lack of caregiver um, directly linked to uh, poor, poor care uh, as well as... Uh, a huge effect on uh, mental health uh, for the residents who felt so, so isolated. Okay, well, you know, in the midst of all of this, we are waiting for new modeling numbers from the province, and some experts say that we're on track to hit 2,000 cases a day. Even scarier, the actual numbers now are exceeding what 
the modeling had predicted to be the case now. Uh, I believe the modeling had said we would be at around 1,200. We've passed 1,500. So let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, thanks for being with us. Dr. Sly, can you hear me? Yes, I certainly can. Can you hear me? Uh, absolutely. So uh, we're, we're waiting to hear new modeling. At the moment, we are exceeding the modeling. Why is that happening? It's happening, Lily, because uh, really there's four main drivers of this. Uh, we're in the second of them already. The first is just carelessness. We let our guard down. People thought it was almost ended, and so they took the mask off, went to bars and restaurants. That was too soon. It was very unwise. And the second thing, of course, we're coming off the patio in the park now. We're, we're getting into the basement, the bar, the restaurant, and uh, there were more bodies per cubic meter inside. And then we're faced with uh, the temperature going down, even inside. So we're going to see more spreading of the warm breath around the room, you know, before it goes down. And lastly, of course, humidity. When the furnaces come on, the air becomes drier, and that uh, the moisture around little droplets evaporates within seconds. And we see the the, the core, the the nucleus of the droplet, now spreading around the house. So so it's it's going to get worse before it gets better, and it's certainly moving upwards in an exponential fashion right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean. We're seeing this all around the world. Uh, not all around the world, but in great parts of it. Uh, we should be looking at uh, how Australia brought their enormous second wave right down to essentially zero uh, by bringing in strict controls. And now everybody there is quite quite happy now. They, they suffered through it, gritted their teeth, uh, and now they're almost free. A handful of cases are seen in the, in the country just every day. Very little. Uh, New Zealand is on similarly flat. Uh, Taiwan has never had a, an outbreak at all. They're only 100 uh, miles from the coast of China. Uh, in many places in the world have done the right thing, uh, simply by bringing in strict controls, enforced and very penalized uh, quarantine, uh, lots of testing, that kind of thing, and they were under control. We haven't done, if, if you compare ourselves to the, the dumpster fire south of the border, it, we look pretty good. But <laughs> we still could have been doing a far better job. Okay, I'm going to ask a tough question now, and uh, I've been talking to Jane Medes and Frangelina about the situation in long-term care. So my question is this, and it's it's for any of you who want to answer, because we have public health officials talking about a, quote, circuit breaker, which I think is, is a euphemism for lockdown. And uh, so if we do that, if we go to circuit breaker, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, will that alleviate the situation in long-term care, which seems to be on a separate trajectory. Who wants to take that? I, I can go first if you want. Sure. Uh, so the idea is really to, using the circuit breaker. It is but one tool um, to fight this virus. And uh, it refers to closing down, basically closing down of areas where people are close together, where people don't wear masks, where people um, can spread the virus to one another. Um, and does that uh, have an impact on our long-term care? Absolutely. Our long-term cares are part of our community. If the virus is very present within our community, it will find its way inside of our long-term care home. 
Um, so we are all connected. Uh, but the circuit breaker of, of putting limitation and closing down, um, as I say, restaurants and gyms and, and places w- where um, it is easy for for the virus to, to travel from, from one to another is but one step. You still need to do testing. Ontario is not testing as much as we should. We, you still need to do uh, case tracing. You still need to do enforced a quarantine. All of this has to be in place. Uh, but the, the shutting down, the circuit breaker, is one step in this arsenal that will allow us to get rid of this virus. Dr. Sly, do you agree? Absolutely. I'm not sure there was Jane or Francois answering, from, but uh, but uh, she's right on. Uh, the circuit breaker does work. It's it's severe. It's tough, but it will stop the virus if you have it for about two full incubation periods. That's about 28 days. Anything less than that, it's not really enough. We will bounce back again afterwards, but at least you, it, it gives everybody a breather and it stops the the piling up of bodies, not bodies, but hopefully not bodies, but patients in the hallways of hospitals. But the important thing to think of is that, is that a, a pure lockdown means everybody stays in the basement, nobody moves for that period of time. That's fine for, for many of us, but that doesn't work for long-term care. You still need people to attend to those those poor souls in, in, in those institutions. They still need to come to work. So it's a kind of an exception to the, to the lockdown. But, but, there are but lots of the exceptions pre- to the lockdown. Well, that's true. But the previous person there actually mentioned the magic word testing. This is where this should have been brought in back in April and May. We had to, we, we should have brought, whether PCR testing or certainly more recently the short-term testing at $5 a shot. It's a cheap, fast, and easy. As a, as a requirement to work in a long-term care home, you have a test each every, let's say, five days, every week at the maximum. Every time you come to work, you take a test. I mean, it's a little bit of a cost, but it's the kind of thing that will enable, enable people to relax and certainly stop a lot of those infection. Remember, the long-term care home is, is, a, is, a, is a recipient of virus from the outside the community. It's also where viruses can escape into the community. So we need to have, be aware of that, uh, that filter both ways. Now, I mean, we're talking about the circuit breaker. It seems to me that that's where we're at more or less i mean uh, the 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 public health authorities have decided here in toronto and in peel well restaurants aren't going to be opening up and uh, gyms i think you can have 10 people in a gym but you're not going to be able to resume fitness classes and and all of those things so uh, and their argument is well those things have been shut down for the last bit and still we have this surge Exactly, and the, the, it, it, given the figures, I mean, look at the evidence. I know it's it's tempting to listen to the the wailing and so on, and we sympathise those restaurants. I'm aching to get back to, but business has to take a second role here, second position. We've got to control the virus. If we don't do that, then we're all going to suffer in a really big way. Christmas cancel that out. We won't be seeing uh, the daylight until next spring if we don't do something now. And even now, it may be a little too uh, late to see Christmas uh, in a relaxed format as well. I think we're going to look forward to a dark, a dark winter. But we need to do something. These half measures, the political measures, are not working. We need to look at the evidence-based uh, technical interventions, such as a lockdown. Yep. Okay, let's uh, hear from Tony in Brampton. Hello, Tony. Hi, Libby. Um, 
the problem is the government doesn't have the political will to keep these people alive. They're no longer contributing to society, and the sooner they die, the sooner they don't have to pay the mold age or CPP. That's pretty and, harsh. And, uh, they should close all four-bedroom uh, rooms and only allow one person in there, and they should give the uh, PSW is a decent wage. I'm talking at least $25 an hour because they work their tails off. They do. Absolutely, they do. Um, the, the government just doesn't, uh, would rather sweep it under the carpet and uh, continue along. Okay. Thanks for your call, Tony. That is a very uh, harsh view. And, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, because we keep hearing that for the government and they have temporarily raised some rates, but uh, what about long-term care homes? People pay good money to be in those places. They're owned by companies that make a lot of profit. I don't understand why the companies have to wait for the government to raise the wages. Who wants to take that? Oh, this is a this is a very good question. I mean, how do you solve the quality of care in their long term care home? You make PSW a career. You give them full time job. You pay them a living wage. You give them a few benefits, a few sick days, so that they can stay home when they're sick, and they can even dream of a pension. And problem solved. You don't have the recruitment and retention issues that we have now. Uh, Quality of care is directly linked to continuity of care, linked to continuity of caregiver when you have forever a rotating door of new PSW who it doesn't matter how hard they work, they cannot make a living, they, they go work someplace else, uh, then you have every shift you're working short. And uh, Jane went through what it means to work short. It means that you run from call bell to call bell and you never have time to give quality care to your residents. Although this is what they all want to provide to their residents, they just can't because the workload is not something that a human being can handle right now. All of this can change. The government said that they will listen to the commission recommendations to have a minimum standard of four hours of hands-on care. Uh, two weeks later, last week, they put in a budget with zero increase. Yes, uh, I, I uh, challenged the finance minister on that. He said, well, I mean, it's a bit late. He said that that, that budget item will be in the March budget, but uh, yeah. We are all questioning and wondering why it wasn't there. And, and what keeps them from putting the standard now so that homes have to report as to where are we at? For a lot of homes, we guessing that they're really poorly staffed, others pretty good. Um, get them to report right now. Bring some transparency in this to rebuild the system. They did not even do that. Okay. And I think the other thing that you have to remember, too, is that this government's answer to the staffing problem is to bring in untrained people, people who have absolutely no training with seniors, no training with infection control, no knowledge of any kind of dementia or anything like that. Um, they're going to pay them probably minimum wage, maybe a tad more. Um, and instead of having trained PSWs, this is their response. And this is what the industry has wanted for years. And they're getting what they want. 
to be able to bring in untrained workers so they don't even have to pay the PFWs, the pittance they pay them today. Yeah, I mean, I saw that part of the plan is to bring in people who've lost their jobs in hospitality. I would have hoped there would be some training, but yeah, that definitely seems like the uh, cheap out version. I I just want to take, we're running out of time. I want to take a quick call from Elizabeth in Toronto. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, my, My concern is I'm a single person without a family. Mm hmm. And I'm terrified that I'm going to end up in a nursing home or a long-term care, and I won't have someone checking to see what's happening with me. And I know I'm not the only single person out there. So I just wonder, who's supporting single people? Like, who's coming in to make sure that I'm okay when I don't have a family to do it? I mean... That's a, it's a very good question. And you, and you know, I'm, I'm not single, but I don't have children. And, uh, we kind of wonder the same thing. And, uh, you know, there's been a, a poll by the Ryerson Institute of Aging that one of the results of this is that there are a lot of people out there who are not quite at this stage of life yet who are thinking like, what the heck do we have to do to stay out of those places? And I, and like, I know you didn't like that man's comment about the waiting for us to die, but I can guarantee that's how a lot of us are feeling. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling like that. I think that's uh, ascribing that motive to people is is maybe not fair, but they're not doing very much about it. Elizabeth, uh, I hear you, and uh, yeah, I'm wondering the same thing. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, we are uh, just about out of time, so... Where are we left with this? You know, what's next? What What's next? The, the government has to step aside and let the public health expert uh, make the decision as to what needs to be done to keep us safe. Once the public health tells us what needs to be done to keep us safe, if it has an impact on business, if it has an impact on workers, then the government comes in with support because those businesses have done nothing wrong. They're not being closed because they were bad. They're being closed because of the pandemic. The government has a role to play to make sure that those business and workers make it through the pandemic. But it is not up to a politician to decide good public health advice. Those have to come from public health. Then the government acts to support businesses and people. Well, I mean, that, that is sort of happening. Public health seems to have overruled the government, but the government's, you know, one level of government points at the next one and says, oh, the, the uh, you've uh, allocated money, but it's not flowing. So it's, it's really, it's hard to see where that stops. Jane, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I, I think that, you know, we definitely need to um, figure out what what's going on and get our system to work properly. We do have public uh, health officials, cities versus the politicians versus the chief medical officer of health. Um, I think that, you know, the provincial government, sadly, has not been effective at all. Um, and so they really need to be looking at what they're doing. They need to follow experts, whether it's the experts they have or whether they new, need new ones, um, I think is a big question. Hmm. And Dr. Sly? Absolutely. I agree with uh, both the other panelists, and I think that we need to be really uh, stepping up the game with uh, testing, because this is a silent, sneaky virus. So bring in the testing, and let's make decisions based on evidence, not on the political whim, I think. 
Okay, well, uh, we're all holding our breath to see what the next round of modeling shows. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Timothy Sly, Jane Medes, and France Jelina. You're thank very you. welcome. Thanks, oh. everybody. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.